Hello and welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is John Nesbitt, Chief Executive Officer of Suncorp Bank, part of the Suncorp Group Limited. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to have you along for another episode of the Arate Podcast. And for those people who are unfamiliar with me, I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. We are a Brisbane-based executive search company that recruits CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. I also have a LinkedIn community called the CEO Incubator. And if you're not currently a member, I'd certainly suggest that you become a member of that group, which is a great way for C-suite executives and non-executive directors to network with their peers across industry and get access to career opportunities that we advertise there before they go to the open job market. There'll be links to Arate Executive and the CEO Incubator in the show notes for this podcast. Today, I'm very excited to bring to you John Nesbitt as a guest, and let me introduce you to him now. John Nesbitt was appointed Chief Executive Officer of Suncorp Bank in December 2013. He joined Suncorp in May 2010 as Group Chief Financial Officer. Prior to joining Suncorp, John held senior finance and business positions at Perpetual Limited, including the position of Group Executive for Private Wealth and Group CFO. He spent 12 years with Lend Lease Group in a range of senior financial positions in Australia and the USA. He's also worked for MLC Limited and in both Australia and the UK at Price Waterhouse Coopers. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with John Nesbitt. John, thanks very much for taking the time to have a chat to us today on the Arate podcast. It's a beautiful uh, Monday morning here in uh, sunny Brisbane. Uh, perhaps just to start, for the people who are listening in, why don't you tell us a little bit about your current responsibilities, etc. Thanks, Richard, and uh, good morning, everybody. Look, I'm very fortunate to be, the, to be the CEO of Suncorp Bank, and I've been running the bank for exactly two years. I started this time two years ago in 2013, and I was given that opportunity after having been the CFO for the Suncorp Group for about three years before that. Mm -hmm. So I've been thoroughly enjoying the opportunity to run a business, which is what I was doing in my previous employment at Perpetual. Mm -hmm. I was running their private wealth business for a couple of years after having been CFO again for, for three or four years in that business. So it's been a great fun transition from uh, being CFO of yeah. a big public company to running one of the key business units. Mm, that's uh, interesting. Uh, we'll talk perhaps a little bit later about this transition of CFO to CEO because it's not an uncommon one. No. Just uh, what about the sort of the mandate of the role? How big's the team? And you know, give us some of the the key metrics around the business. Yes. Look, Suncorp Bank is uh, is one of the uh, leading regional banks in Australia. We have about three percent of the Australian market have 3,000 team members, uh, predominantly in Queensland, but more and more so outside Queensland. Um, we have 1.1 million customers, and our business is broken into 80% 
focused at mortgages, so mum and dad mortgages all around Australia, yep. uh, and the balance in business banking. Mm-hmm. And half of that business banking is what you'd call uh, SME commercial, mm-hmm. in the smaller end of SME commercial, and the other half is agri. Okay. And our brand is just beautiful out in the country, right. in the bank. And in fact, last week, I spent three days in uh, northern New South Wales and southwest Queensland visiting our teams and customers okay. across that region. It was great to see smiles on their faces out there. A lot of the farmers around uh, Moree and Gundawindi have received good rains at the right time mm-hmm. this year and their crops are just outstanding. Okay. So a lot of smiles on the faces of our good customers at the Christmas functions last week. Oh, good. And why uh, is it that Suncorp has a particular uh, you know, footprint in the agri-space as compared to other sectors? So look, uh, Suncorp really grew out of the agri-space going back 110 years ago and our first loans were into that area. And over the years, we've developed a, a very good expertise and and understanding of the needs of the agri-industry. In Queensland, we hold around 15% of the market share here uh, and have excellent positions across all parts of the state. And and some of our good customers have been struggling up in the northwestern parts of Queensland with the drought. And we've been supporting them in all manner of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, to get and go, to get to go and uh, visit some of our other customers down the southwestern part of Queensland that have uh, benefited from rain um, has been a good balancing uh, mm-hmm. feeling. Uh, this yeah, I, I imagine uh, being a farmer would be a very, very tough life. Uh, my family came from uh, farming in Ireland a long time ago, oh, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, you watch the news and the farmers don't often have a lot to celebrate, do they? No, look, it's a, it's a tough industry, and look, frankly, I grew up in that uh, part of the okay. world in northern New South Wales. Um, and uh, have a good understanding of mm-hmm. what the issues and opportunities are in that mm, part of sure. Australia. And, and my first uh, five years of work was uh, doing tax returns and accounts mm-hmm. for farmers in uh, northwestern New South okay. Wales. So it was actually good to go and visit up with right. um, some of those old customers from a banking point of view sure. 30 odd years later. Uh-huh. Well, that's an excellent segue into uh, this conversation because I like to start by talking about where it all began. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you were born and your uh, family and your early life, etc. Uh, thanks, Richard. So I grew up in Inverell in northern New South Wales, where mm-hmm. I was born, mm-hmm. and my mum and dad were born there. So mm-hmm. our family went back uh, several generations. And in the early 1900s, my great-grandfather set up a shop in Inverell, okay. selling clothing and soft goods um, to the Inverell district. And mm-hmm. Inverell's a beautiful little town on the McIntyre River mm-hmm. um, and services quite a broad section of the uh, uh, northern Tablelands and northwest New South Wales. And, okay. And uh, I was fortunate to um, be able to stay on in town after school and work for one of the local chartered accounting firms. So uh, was your um, grandfather's business then run by your parents? Or? Yeah, so it passed through to four generations, ultimately to my brother. So okay. to my grandfather, to my father, and then right. to my brother. Okay. And uh, ultimately we had to um, sell the shop and mm-hmm. move out with the big department chains okay. coming to town. Sure. It just became too hard. Mm-hmm. and my brother had the big decision of um, exiting the family business and, right. and uh, making sure that uh, my dad was well provided for in his retirement. Yeah, I imagine uh, that would be a, quite a, a heartfelt decision uh, with so much a history in um, a family business. Like very, that. very difficult decision mm. and uh, made over several months mm-hmm. and or probably years um, okay. where it became quite clear that mm-hmm. um, it was very difficult to survive and grow 
in that environment. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so my brother exited. Okay. And uh, at the time, my dad was living out on the family farm outside town, and um, he had other things that he could get on with and enjoy. Sure. And, and my brother moved off, and he's down in Melbourne these okay, days. Okay, right. And yeah. so, uh, how many brothers and sisters? So I've got two brothers. Okay. Um, uh, both younger, so right. I'm the eldest okay. of two brothers. Um, one started out in the police force. And right. Uh, ended up doing a whole variety of things mm-hmm. after that. And uh, my other brother who went into the shop, um, he started out in banking, interestingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, ended up in the family business okay. for many years. Right. And ultimately working for different clothing companies down okay. in in, uh, in the Melbourne area, which right. is obviously uh, very uh, prominent in that. Sure. So you uh, you did your schooling in Inverell? I did. I and went then... to Inverell High School and then okay. I went on to... Uh, um, I did all of my study a tertiary study part-time mm-hmm. um, or external studies for okay. the University of New England yep. and uh, which worked out really well because I love cricket okay. and I was able to um, mix playing a lot of competitive cricket with um, my studies and right. uh, uh, which worked out quite favourably. So okay. studied through University of New England, Bachelor of Financial Administration, Yes. Um, completed in around 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in 81, I moved to Sydney to join okay. Pricewaterhouse okay. Um, after five years working uh, in the country. I, right. I thought, well, I've been doing farmers' tax returns and accounts for four or five years and shopkeepers uh, around the local area. I thought, well, I'll go, and go to the city and, and there's more opportunity there. And my mm-hmm. uh, wife, uh, or fiancé at that time, right. uh, looked like being able to arrange employment in Sydney so it made okay. sense to us to join up in Sydney. So. And you're still playing cricket at that time? I was still playing cricket. I right. moved, uh, I played a lot of country cricket okay. for New South Wales country for a couple of years. Okay. So I got to um, come up against some uh, pretty good fast bowlers. I was right. an opening batsman. And, okay, um, right. Faced Len Pascoe one stage and so he was pretty slippery. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a lot of the other New South Wales uh, opening bowlers right. and bowlers. But it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And cricket's a great game where uh, it's a team sport, uh, and uh, if you play well as a team, you mm. can succeed. So okay. it's not about individual stars, sure. it's about how you play together. Yeah, but I went to Sydney and played with Randwick down there for uh, many years mm-hmm. and thoroughly enjoyed the great competition in Sydney. And right. It was a great way to go from the country area to learn your way around Sydney because you were playing against other clubs all over the city. So mm-hmm. I quickly learnt my way to driving around Sydney. I'll tell you one thing I did learn. Uh, when you're in the country, you've got to wave to everybody, otherwise right. you offend them. you so, got to do that little one finger thing. Yeah, there. the one finger yeah. on your steering wheel. So <laughs> yeah. that first uh, six months in Sydney, uh, looking at who's coming the other way, it drove you nuts. So right. soon learnt that uh, your anonymity in Sydney is uh, pretty huge. You don't need to worry about who's coming in your direction. No, that's right. Just get out of their road. But it was a great opportunity to... Um, to, to uh, create a whole new group of friendships. Mm-hmm. Some of them were team members that I played with up in the country, which was okay. great to continue those friendships sure. and uh, meet a whole lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And it was a good transition to come mm. from the country down into uh, Sydney in those days. And so when you went into PwC, what you must have been in your sort of early to mid-twenties, would that be right? Yep, uh, early twenties, 22. Right, yeah. and so uh, I imagine walking into that kind of environment, having been you know, a country boy and working for a country uh, you know, uh, business, it must have been quite a uh, culture shock for you. Well, it was uh, it was quite a, a different uh, business altogether. Sure. Um, and I was, I came down to Sydney expecting okay, I'm going to see a lot of big businesses and different kinds of business. I was doing tax accounting work um, mm-hmm. for PwC in those days, and uh, what su- uh, quickly came to be was. Um, um, I ended up doing a lot of the farmers that right. PwC had on their books. Only they became massive cattle stations sure. and 
uh, wheat and sheep farms uh, all across Australia. So I was able to bring my expertise to the table. What I found through my career, you build off your core. I had a core strength and knowledge in those areas, which I was able to share with the team members that were working for PwC in those Mm. days. And interestingly, there were a lot of uh, country kids like myself that were uh, in those areas of PwC, and you're able to leverage off each other and and develop your skills. Okay. It was a great learning environment uh, mm-hmm. coming from a country town where you got a very clear picture of, of how society works and how people work and, and to go to the city and see it from a whole other perspective was just a brilliant experience. Mm. Oh, that's excellent. And so you're with uh, PwC for six years and then uh, looking at your CV, moving then into the property industry, would that be right? Um, yes, yeah, so at, at PwC, in fact, it was an incredible organisation for teaching you how to work and, mm-hmm. and the understanding you got from um, basic capability and management skills were just extraordinary. Um, and they actually seconded me to, to the UK for a while, so okay. I got to go and uh, visit the UK and work in their Manchester office okay. for, for six months back right. in 85, 86, which was an incredible experience. When I came back from Manchester, it was uh, a very fortunate opportunity for me um, in that I got thrown some spreadsheets and tables for a big project, mm-hmm. uh, which was the Sydney Harbour Tunnel Project okay. in those days, which yep. was quite in concept. stage and uh, ultimately the joint venture that was bidding for that work, Transfield Kumagai joint venture, Mm -hmm. um, won the project and Mm -hmm. got the right to build the Sydney Harbour Tunnel and the Japanese company Kumagai, which was a big client of Pricewaterhouse in those days, Mm -hmm. um, asked me to go and be the project finance manager on this massive infrastructure project, which was probably the biggest infrastructure, infrastructure project um, of its kind uh, at that stage in Australia. It was mm-hmm. an incredible opportunity. Mm. And, and, uh, and I couldn't say no, to be really frank. Right. It was uh, it was a really good stepping stone. But it, it required you to leave. It wasn't a secondment. No, no, no. It was a, it was a, a move to work for the Japanese, which right. again was another great opportunity in getting to understand a completely different culture. Sure. And how that culture worked with a, with a different culture, Transfield mm. being very much uh, of its origins were, were uh, Italian. Mm-hmm. So you got to understand the cultural mix of the Italian and the Japanese and how they work together. And um, I found that uh, fascinating from mm. a, a cultural study point of view. But that project um, went very, very successfully. Mm-hmm. And I learned a huge amount and know that I contributed to mm-hmm. the outcome in a meaningful way. And today, when you drive through, when I drive through the Sydney Harbour Tunnel, I came through it last night, um, or this morning actually, going out to the airport, and mm-hmm. um, it was quite a, a buzz to know that you right. know, that's your Sydney Harbour Tunnel. You contributed to Absolutely. it. So that's the beauty of the construction and property industry. It's mm-hmm. a very tangible industry, and you can see the assets that you've helped create. Uh, here in Australia and all around the world. So that opening was fantastic um, into the property and construction industry. Right. I certainly um, can appreciate working in a Japanese company. There are some major cultural uh, differences in how they approach for business. I lived in Cairns for four years and had a lot to do with the Japanese uh, up there. But uh, uh, I'm interested in the, the Italian part of it. I mean, when you look at Australian business culture versus Japanese and Italian, what would you say are the fundamental differences that you experienced? Uh, well, the demeanour of Italian community and Japanese community is quite different. Mm-hmm. So Japanese are quiet, mm-hmm. listening. Uh, they say yes, mm-hmm. and then they say no. Right. You've got to really listen to um, uh, the, the elderly Japanese when they're being asked questions. 
Um, whereas the Italian community is much more flamboyant, open, uh, boisterous, um, uh, noisy, um, equally thinking and capable and driven, mm. but just two different styles altogether. Mm -hmm. So it was quite interesting watching the very elderly Japanese executives mix with the very elderly uh, Italian executives on the uh, Transfield side. And mm. um, it was a fascinating experience. And, and I got, uh, and the most important thing I think in, through your life is who you work for. And there was a particular leader of the, of the project manager on the Sydney Harbour Tunnel project came from Transfield, a chap by the name of Claudio de Berardino. Right. And he was an amazing individual and I learned a huge amount from Claudio mm -hmm. um, in how to lead big teams and connect with the government and the regulators and okay. the, uh, the frontline teams and contractors right out to the front of the project. Mm -hmm. and his ability to listen and genuinely understand and connect with the team members, members across that project I found extremely fascinating. Mm. And what do you think were uh, some of the key attributes of that skill that he had that you were able to uh, implement in terms of your own leadership style? Um, look, he was a very inquisitive person. Okay. He listened very well. Mm -hmm. um, he had a lot of clarity around um, the outcome of the project and, and how to go about executing it. Mm -hmm. um, he never let things become a problem. Mm -hmm. He sniffed out the problems and got across them very quickly and very early. And, mm. and I found that his style and approach to that, um, which was very humble and very good questioning techniques, mm -hmm. were just amazing. Wow, that's interesting. And on the other side of that, um, inside Kumagai, who I was um, a secondi under the project for, um, there was a chap there by the name of Massey Arioka, who I still catch up with you know, some 25 years later. Okay. And Massey was uh, an incredibly intelligent and capable person. Again, extremely inquisitive. Mm -hmm. In fact, he, he spent a lot of time teaching me to play golf. It's as I came to the end of right. my cricketing uh, career and got very active in, in uh, work, and the Japanese love their golf. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Massey used to take me down to the golf course and we'd uh, play a lot of golf together, which okay. was a great experience. But his time, cost, quality, a, fo a focus and, um, and using a lot of the the, uh, mech the processes that companies like Toyota had and embedded mm -hmm. into their uh, processes um, were just brilliant. Right. And, uh, I learned a huge amount from him. Again, very listening mm -hmm. uh, person and incredibly intelligent. Mm. So um, yeah, yeah, I think that's fun. very interesting. I had Kerry O'Brien recently on the podcast and we were talking about leaders and obviously he's interviewed some of the world's very, very most renowned and significant leaders. And I said, what's one of the key distinguishes of leadership or um, that quality and he talked about curiosity. Yes. And that's very much what you're talking about uh, with these two individuals. The fact that they were extremely curious and asked lots and lots of questions um, uh, really sort of uh, reflects what Kerry O'Brien was saying as well. Hmm. Exactly. Okay. Curiosity, I think, is a key feature right. of um, successful leadership. Okay. And then from there, uh, off to um, Lend Lease. That's right. Um, back in the late, late 80s, early 90s, Australia started to come into quite a difficult period in the economy. And, mm -hmm. and um, I particularly wanted to work for an Australian company um, as close to the senior management as I could to get an understanding of the leadership and thinking around, particularly around big public companies in mm -hmm. Australia. And at the time, Len Lease was one of the preeminent listed companies in Australia. Uh, had been around for many years and had an incredible reputation for creating good leaders and executing projects very successfully. Mm. So a job came up uh, in uh, Business Review Group, which is a form of internal audit in 
lend-lease in those days and mm-hmm. I didn't really much care what the job was, I just wanted to go and work for them okay. and got my foot in the door and, mm-hmm. and it was probably the best entry point I could have ever hoped for to a big organisation like that. It took a massive pay cut mm-hmm. and it didn't really matter because it gave me a capability to develop uh, an enormous understanding of how construction development and financial services organisations mm. can work successfully mm. and opened a massive door. and. Uh, it, uh, I never looked back once I stepped in. And that first 12 months in their business review group gave me an opportunity to go out and meet with a broad cross-section of the business and the experience that I'd had through um, Pricewaterhouse in those days and then on to um, the uh, Sydney Harbour Tunnel and other projects that the Japanese were doing. I put me in a good position to be able to see things differently inside uh, lend lease in those days and add value in those reviews. So sure, it was, but it was a great opportunity to meet with you know from uh, some of the directors of the company right through to uh, crane drivers and people working out on sites um, all around Australia. It okay. was an incredible experience. And you were there for twelve years. Yes, uh, twelve years is not a short amount of time. You know, what were some of the things that kept you there for that long? Um, look, one of the unique things around lend lease is that. Uh, particularly in the finance area of Lend-Lease, there was a rotation approach. And basically, I I described it as a three-year rotation. So um, the first year was to learn, the second year was to add value, Mm -hmm. and the third year was to find your next role. Sure. And if you're really quick, you found your next role within um, a couple of months of that third year. And I was fortunate to have six different roles across Lend-Lease over that period of time. And I come to work to learn yep. and I found that I was continually in the deep end somewhere amongst what they were doing and then working my way out of that, adding value for 12 months and mm-hmm. moving on. So okay. um, I worked for their business review group for 12 months, uh, then moved on to group management accountant which um, gave me the full picture of uh, the business planning, the strategy and the uh, execution of the monthly performance for the business, mm-hmm. um, which really gave me a top-down view of sure. uh, one of the top public companies in Australia in, in that era. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I went on to MLC, uh, which was a fabulous opportunity inside Lendlease in those days, mm-hmm. which in, in back in the 90s, Lendlease owned MLC, mm-hmm. which is now part of NAB. Okay. And we got the opportunity to turn that business from being a tired old life insurance company mm-hmm. into a modern day uh, funds management business. And uh, the value of the business to Lendlease improved dramatically mm. through many of the things we did during that period. Uh, and that was the role you culminated your period with them in, was it? Um, that was in the middle of okay. the period. In fact, yep. I worked for Michael Cameron during that period okay. for two or three years uh, when he was CFO for uh, MLC and mm-hmm. I was the financial controller. And today I'm working for Michael, who's the CEO for the overall Suncorp group. Sure. So it's funny how things, uh, uh, what comes around goes around Absolutely. in the Australian market. Um, after MLC, I got an opportunity to go and become the uh, CFO for the property side of Lendlease. Mm-hmm. And so I stepped from being a financial controller to being a, a CFO in, in that group. And that again opened up a huge amount of opportunity. Back in the late 90s, Lendlease had several massive projects mm-hmm. that were leading up to the Olympic Games mm-hmm. in 2000. And sure. I got to see those from a development perspective as they uh, went from concept through to completion. And also at that stage, I was working, uh, that, that role included the construction business, mm-hmm. civil and civic. Mm-hmm. And basically we were told to shape that business up 
uh, get it global pretty quickly and relevant, or it will get exited. Right. So we were on a mission to sure. to, to reconfigure that that business and uh, make it a relevant global business. But it it, uh, it certainly was extremely highly regarded. Oh, it was <clears throat> very highly regarded. Mm. It was just. It, it, its relevance inside the group was starting right. to dissipate. And oh, it was sure. less and less relevant over yeah. time. Okay. <clears throat> and to make it more relevant, we looked at how do we take it globally because mm-hmm. your position in the Australian market was limited mm-hmm. and we looked at what we could do offshore. Mm. And that led to the acquisition of Bovis from P&O yes. back in 99, 2000. Yep. Um, I was uh, intricately involved in that acquisition mm-hmm. um, through to the point where... Uh, after acquisition, uh, integrating it into the broader lend-lease business, um, I became the CFO for the global Bovis lend-lease business, right. which became the heart of lend-lease and gave it a core to work off with a global capability mm-hmm. um, in the construction uh, side of the business, uh, which the development activities could be worked around mm. over time. And um, I got the opportunity with that acquisition to go and live in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the CEO for the acquired business, Luther Cochran, uh, was based. Mm-hmm. And the concept was that the CFO needed to be where the CEO was. Sure. So that led me to living in Charlotte. Right. Which is another interesting thing because Charlotte is actually a banking city. Okay. And so it had a number of major banks head office there Bank of America, First mm-hmm. Union, Wachovia. Um, we're all head office out of Charlotte. So mm-hmm. most of the people in the street that we lived in were either. Uh, from one of the banks or a consultant that worked for the banks. So and how long were you there for? We were there for just over 12 months. Okay. And yeah. it was a great opportunity for um, our children to get to see another whole part of the world. Sure. Um, they were uh, eight, and 11, 8 and 10 at that stage. So it was a very good opportunity for mm. them to see a different world. And um, the tough part was, though, that I spent most of my time on a plane yeah. uh, or in London or mm-hmm. other parts of the, of the U.S., um, or all around the world um, as we we're integrating the business. So mm. it was pretty tough uh, on me physically and mentally, but it was more difficult on my family that mm. had to cope with uh, living in, in Charlotte in America where you're an illegal alien for the first four or five months while you um, got all your social right. security and yep. other, other details that you need to be a relevant person um, in the US. Mm-hmm. It was a very good experience. Mm. Um, I... Um, uh, I interview many, many uh, senior leaders who uh, relocate internationally for their roles and take their family with them. And uh, and then they end up being in a regional role, so they're travelling a lot while their family is sitting in this new city saying, hang on a second, uh, what about us? So it's not an uncommon story at all. And was that part of the motivation for you to return to Australia then? Um, look, ultimately it was. I, I had to decide um, what we were going to do and, and I um, always... Uh, had in my mind that I wanted to be in Australia when my children went to high school. Yes. My son was coming up to that okay. time. Yep. And what we actually did was relocate the head office, global head office from Charlotte to mm-hmm. London, okay. where it probably should have always been. Uh-huh. And I had to make the decision, do we move from Charlotte to uh, the UK, to London, uh, and then only to be heading back to Australia right. um, eight or 12 months later um, to make sure we're there when my son Patrick was due to go to high school. Um, So I had to make the hard decision and it was a wonderful job. I was learning so much and getting a really good understanding of of how business and culture Mm -hmm. works around the the, the country, having Mm -hmm. a global CFO role. 
incredibly uh, stimulating. Mm. Uh, but I needed to decide um, what I was going to do. And, sure. and really family came first, which has been consistent throughout yep. my life. So yep. I decided to come back to Sydney where mm-hmm. I was uh, offered another role, okay. heading up um, the... Uh, it was like a chief operating officer for... Um, for Len Lease in those days, or okay. deputy CFO. Right. Yeah. So Just still remaining fun. within the group. And so yep, what took in. you uh, then into Perpetual? So uh, with Perpetual, um, the opportunity came there to be the CFO for a company which was very locally based. Mm-hmm. And after several years uh, on planes and living and working all around the world with my family, was either in, in the US, in Charlotte, or, or in Sydney, yep. um, and I was everywhere else, and you'd had things like SARS happen in mm-hmm. 2002, I think it was, um, 9-11. Mm-hmm. The world was pretty unsettled then. Sure. Yeah. And I wasn't that excited about jumping on planes and going all around Fair the world. Enough. So the opportunity worked for an Australian financial services organisation, which had a very good position in the superannuation market, mm-hmm. uh, and be close, or be the senior management mm-hmm. uh, in the senior management team and drive where that business was going. Um, was an opportunity good to, to too good to ignore. Okay. So, so I joined Perpetual in two thousand, early two thousand and four. Yeah. And uh, as CFO for that business. And then stepped into the role of CEO. Yes. Well, I stepped into the role of CEO for one of the business units. Okay. So the wealth management or the um, the private wealth mm-hmm. uh, business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where we had um, uh, several thousand customers. Um, uh, high net worth customers mm-hmm. and provided a cross section of services to them and it was a brilliant um, business and particularly the f- philanthropic side of okay. the old perpetual business where they had um, in excess of a billion dollars of funds under administration mm-hmm. which were held and um, and we assisted customers all around Australia to invest their um, philanthropic dollar mm-hmm. into relevant parts of the market. It was probably one of the really most uh, interesting and mm. and uh, good learning opportunities that I had in the perpetual business. Yeah, I, I find that whole space uh, fascinating. The, yeah. We've just recently recruited the CEO for a philanthropic trust. And, right. Uh, right. Getting to understand the drivers and uh, you know the amount of money that's involved. Uh, people, I think, don't really have much visibility of just the massive amounts of money that some of these oh, trusts huge. looked after. No, it's absolutely huge. And mm. one of the key things that we were advocating for at the time was to make sure that the governance of the um, philanthropic mm. organisations was improved, mm-hmm. and, um, which is incredibly important. The, sure. the amount of money and resources that are allocated or um, uh, consumed in these organisations is massive. Mm-hmm. And to make sure there's good capability around that and good governance around the execution is absolutely critical. Mm. Um, and a lot of people donate a lot of their time to charity, which is brilliant. Though to be sustainable over the longer term, it's important for um, charities and philanthropic funds um, to have good capability absolutely. to yeah. help make sure that uh, they're doing the right thing and sure. that there's um, good support. Yeah, I think that uh, individuals. you're absolutely right. And uh, if you look at what's happening in the, uh, the uh, uh, not-for-profit space now, I always said these organisations are having to be far more competitive, far more strategic. They're having to attract a much higher calibre of leader and a much higher calibre of non-executive director to their board. So um, uh, I think they're extremely aware of the fact that, uh, particularly with NDIS uh, uh, looming, that they have to take you know the 
uh, advice on board like you're offering to uh, to build strategic capability uh, or they'll vanish. Oh, it's and absolutely critical, mm. Richard. No, I think when you look at the, um, the, the philanthropic donations that uh, made in the US and compare that to uh, compare philanthropy in the US to Australia, mm. it's completely different. Right. And I think if there's more substance and capability and professionalism brought to the industry, um, it'll attract uh, more investment from more people, particularly mm -hmm. when you look at the baby boomers and the accumulation of wealth that sits in that cohort. Sure. Um, if there is good administration, good capability, and clear value propositions mm -hmm. um, that are established strategically, mm. I think there'll be more money flow into that sector, which will be better for, for uh, the country. Sure, absolutely. And so perpetual for about six years and yes. then into Suncorp uh, yes. in 2010. Yes. So what, what led to that move? It was a big decision. I, I'd been approached, as you do, by one of your peers in the industry <laughs> and um, um, asked if I'd considered um, uh, working for Suncorp. Mm -hmm. And I said no up front. Right. <laughs> I didn't really want to go and work in Brisbane. I was quite happy with my life in Sydney and I was really enjoying running the private client, private wealth business mm -hmm. at Perpetual, um, which is something I'd looked to do um, in moving away from the CFO role. Um, but they were pretty persistent. Right. And so I checked out the organisation quite thoroughly mm -hmm. and found that incredible brands, mm -hmm. um, the team members were... Um, all very genuine, highly capable, uh, and the new CEO, Patrick Snowball, I did a lot of research on him. At, at this stage in your career, it gets down to who you're going to work for as much as who you're going to work with. Mm -hmm. And um, so the organisation had um, some high capability and, and great potential, mm -hmm. and Patrick Snowball appealed to me as somebody I was going to learn from. Yep. So I did a couple of interviews with Patrick mm -hmm. and came to the conclusion he'd be good to work for and it'd be great time um, for me in my life to transition to think and learn from somebody like that. The big challenge though was at that time that Suncorp had got into a lot of trouble in the bank that mm -hmm. I'm um, now responsible for. Back in those days in 2008-09, um, the bank found it very difficult when the GFC hit. Right. And our balance sheet was out of shape mm. and it was, a, it was a threat as to whether or not the bank would blow up the overall mm, business. I remember. And, um, so I did a lot of research on that and felt that it was um, well worth the effort to mm -hmm. help the team correct that, mm -hmm. strengthen the balance sheet and do all they those things. They had a strong things. exposure to property development at that time, didn't they? Um, the bank did, yeah. yeah. So we had $18 billion of loans mm -hmm. leading to rather large property developments mm -hmm. um, funded um, in the short-term market. Yes. So when the GFC came along, there wasn't much short-term market mm. to raise funding. So mm -hmm. the bank had to completely rethink what it had to do. So mm. a lot of changes, and Patrick was brought in with a very deep general insurance background, mm -hmm. um, but he's a very good decision-maker, could cut through the issues, and and uh, with the team came to the view of what we needed to do mm -hmm. to um, right-size right the bank, mm -hmm. which meant running off that $18 billion of debt. And the team did an extraordinary job in doing that, mm -hmm. you know, rational... Uh, way over over several years. Sure, it was probably the best stress relief pill I've ever had. And right. In June two thousand and thirteen, when uh, Goldman Sachs um, acquired the the bulk of the residual uh -huh. um, non core bank, okay, um, which and that was a turning point for mm -hmm. the company. And then about three years in, 
moving into the role of CEO. Yeah. So um, uh, we've uh, we've moved through your career a little quicker than I normally would because uh, we're a bit limited on time. But you know, one of the things I'm interested in is you've gotten to roles outside of the the, the the classification of finance, you know, COO role you mentioned with Bovis, back to a finance role, up to a CEO role, back to a CFO role, up to a CEO role. You're obviously not somebody that who is particularly wedded to the title on your business card. But what do you think are some of the attributes that you've got which have enabled you to um, to step between not massively disparate role families, but um, extensions of what you've been doing to do it capably and then be able to step backwards and forwards at will? Um, look, look, I think it goes back to your upbringing and, and having worked in a family that was in business as mm-hmm. a clear picture of what you need to do to operate successfully. Um, coming through the CFO environment gives you a really good base for what works and what doesn't mm-hmm. financially to make a business successful. But what was really helpful was when I worked with the Japanese back in the in the uh, late 80, 80s, okay. and you got very good visibility to good decision making and to some incredible skills. Mm-hmm. And I always aspired to um, do the roles that some of these incredible um, capabilities that I was working with at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, Directors of different companies that had, uh, that had team, uh, team members that were working with that had been CEOs of big businesses. You're talking so, about Japanese, so particularly and Australian. Okay. So yep. um, particularly, Kumagai hired a lot of ex CEOs and others to help them okay. run programs. Yeah. And I learned an incredible amount from working with those team members. Right. Then when I went to Len Lease, the CFO role at Len Lease was more like a commercial officer role rather mm-hmm. than, a, than a number cruncher sure. accountant. You had to do your accounting and yes. get that done well, but you were actively involved in the front of the business. Mm-hmm. So if the CEO stepped out, you, you were asked to step in and, and, um, and, and run the business while they were out. So you got a completely different perspective mm-hmm. and you're trained to be a, a, a CEO. Mm-hmm. Though in a construction engineering environment, very unusual for a finance person to be given an opportunity to actually run a business. Yes, sure. So the appeal for Perpetual um, was that there'd be a good chance of right. uh, uh, having a shot at a, at, a, at a CEO role yep. um, and the same with Suncorp. Right, so that was a strategic part of your decision making is that if I remain in property and construction, it's unlikely I can step to CEO. If I move into a financial services environment, I've got a better chance of getting to where I want to be. And, and that was a key part of the strategy of going right. to Lendlease in, sure. back in the uh, in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Lendlease had a big financial services arm. It right. was property development, construction mm-hmm. and, and financial services in those days mm-hmm. with MLC being a key part of the business. So by joining up with Len Lease, there was a very good opportunity and superannuation was clearly about to take off in those days. If mm-hmm. you remember back in the 90s where superannuation... Um, superannuation guarantee uh, became quite relevant mm-hmm. and that opened up a, a whole new level of opportunity. So going to Len Lease with my property background and finance background sure. opened up the door to right. the financial services which ultimately led through to Perpetual, then through to Suncorp and then today mm-hmm. the opportunity to run uh, Suncorp mm. Bank. So would you say over your career you've been quite uh, forward thinking in terms of mapping out how you wanted to manage your career in order to get where you wanted to go or is it more happened by circumstance? Um, look, it, the, your career is all about options and mm-hmm. it's putting yourself in the best spot to pick up the mm-hmm. best options for you at the time. You, don't, you can't 
plan explicitly how the next 20 years is going to play out, um, but you can put yourself in a position to best explore the options that are available. And I've selected organisations and businesses over my time Mm -hmm. and people that I've worked with on the basis of what are the options that that's going to provide to me for my mm-hmm. career? Because you never know what's coming around the corner. Sure. You know, tomorrow is a mystery, yesterday is history, and today is a gift. So if you look into the future, all you can do is put yourself in the best spot for those options. Mm-hmm. And do 110% of whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing today mm-hmm. and let those options open up. And financial service, Australia is basically two massive industries, mm-hmm. um, the resources industry uh, and the financial services mm-hmm. industry. So. And so uh, you've obviously had some good success in terms of getting yourself in the right space for the right options to open up. But if you look back on your career in retrospect, is there anything that you'd look back and you'd say, if I had my time over again, I would have done that differently? Um, look, you, you always have those things um, as you go by. Um, I, I think um, you know, I have no regrets. So okay. I have a no regrets policy. So right. Is there anything that I'm doing at the moment that I would have a regret in three or four years' time? Mm-hmm. Um, if so, take action now. Sure. So I don't really look back on it as having too many regrets. Um, probably the, the, the biggest regrets I have, uh, if I look back through time, is that when I was doing a lot of travelling and I couldn't be at home to, sure. for my kids' birthdays and those sort of things that really yeah. tug on you. Okay. But from a career point of view, um, I've been extremely fortunate. And, um, have been able to gain value from uh, learning across a, cross, a broad cross-section of different roles and, and positions over the years. Okay. And so we're recording this uh, just prior to uh, Christmas, uh, but this will go live uh, in early January. So looking into the next year, you know, what's really your mandate? What, what, what are your clearly articulated um, goals in terms of what you want to achieve in your role as CEO now? Um, look, with Suncorp Bank, we're in a massive, middle of a massive transformation of the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, it come 2017 financial year, so from July forward, um, we'll have a brand new bank. Okay. We're right in the middle of replacing all of the core systems for the bank mm-hmm. and very well progressed with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually writing loans and, okay. and about to uh, start taking deposits onto the new system. Um, it's working incredibly well. And so from the 2017 year, um, we will be um, working into the market in a completely new set of systems and capability. At the same time, we're improving the risk management across Mm -hmm. the bank, which is incredibly important in this day and age Mm -hmm. um, to become an advanced bank. So as we look into 2017 year, we'll be a brand spanking new bank and uh, be able to absolutely test um, the majors and being a genuine alternative to the majors and and really connecting to our customers. Fantastic. We're really fortunate that we invested into replacing the system, which takes several years. The decision to replace the system was made in 2011. Mm -hmm. And the big thing that's on most people's lips around the financial services industry today is called disruption. Mm. And so you've got a lot of fintechs and new uh, initiatives coming and innovation coming into the banking industry and we'll be extremely well placed to be able to embrace those changes as they come through and actually become a disruptor in our own, side, our own, own right. It's a really privileged position to be in and, uh, and so we've got a big agenda in front of us. Um, the team's working extremely hard and mm-hmm. very focused at what we need to do to change mm. the way we interact with customers and to change the way we work with our um, IT capability uh, to uh, 
really be that genuine alternative to the big guys as we go into that next year. And that, this is where we're really fortunate to be a part of the Suncorp group, sure. where you get the technology capability mm -hmm. of a massive general insurance business being able to be applied into the bank, uh, which a lot of our peers don't have access or the capability to do that. So we've been able to move quickly and position ourselves very well to um, be a new bank and, and be in a position to scale up and mm -hmm. grow and respond to what customers need. Mm -hmm. And uh, customers' needs are changing in financial services. Sure. So I'm pretty lucky right. to be working for, for Suncorp Bank and I've got an incredible team that are doing a marvellous job in mm -hmm. repositioning what we're doing. And I suppose a little bit like uh, driving down the Harbour Tunnel, yeah. uh, you know, in a few years' time, you'll be able to look at this bank and say, wow, I was uh, uh, a part of creating that uh, that new bank in the Australian environment. Uh, that must be a, quite a thrilling uh, uh, accomplishment. Uh, well, look, yeah, we've been pretty pleased with what we've been able to achieve to date. And, and I know that in uh, several years, I'll be sitting on the balcony at, uh, in our apartment, uh, having a glass of red wine and look back and and uh, with a huge amount of pride as to what we're going to achieve over the next little while. And even in the last two years, you know, the Suncorp Bank was recognised by um, Money Magazine as the Australian Bank of the Year this right. year. Okay. First time a uh, non-major has yes. been accredited with that recognition mm -hmm. and we're also by Euro Money magazine recognized as as the number one bank in the country so right. to get that external recognition of the mm. changes that we've made over the last couple of years um, is gives you it's very humbling and gives you a great sure. amount of pride in what the team are doing today. Oh, that's great! And so, for people listening uh, to the podcast, John, who have aspirations to become a CEO or to achieve significant things in terms of their own career, um, what would be a couple of the key messages that you'd want to share with them uh, to enable them to uh, be able to grow to the same sort of accomplishments that you've been able to? Um, look, I think the first thing is to listen. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is to employ people around you that are going to push into your role. Mm -hmm. I can only uh, do my role and help my boss if my team members are pushing into my role. And mm -hmm. so the key thing is to employ people that are better than you. Mm -hmm. um, that you know, the first thing I did when I came into the bank role was to uh, find a number of team members who could be my successor. Mm -hmm. That immediately enabled me to be able to do more and the bank to rise. Mm. So recruit people that are much better than you. Um, and there's a really good saying that I got years ago. Um, you've got two eyes, two ears, and one mouth. Right. Use them in that order yes. and that priority. Right. So observe what's going around you. And, and on the back of the comment about having team members that push up into your space mm. um, is make sure that you're thinking into that next role. Okay. So as I sit here thinking into um, what are my next roles, I'm thinking, you know, what, what do the board members need? How right. do I need to think about being a board member? So sure. go and do an AICD um, course, and which I'm doing at the moment, right. or early in the new year, Okay. Um, and prepare yourself for that next phase of your career. Um, but think into what board members need. Think into what shareholders mm. need and uh, genuinely try to understand and help your boss and, and keep lifting up. The other key thing, Richard, is values. Mm. And to survive and grow in any organisation, whether it's in Australia or anywhere around the world, is it's your value set. Mm -hmm. And it's that value set that lives with you all your life and it backs you up when you're in strife, when you might have a boss that's doing the wrong thing yep. or team members that are doing the wrong thing, and you call it. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that you've got to minimize your regrets. Mm-hmm. If something crosses your value set, mm. you've got to decide what you're going to do and deal with it mm. with um, ruthless execution. And would there be, uh, without asking you what they were, but would there be many times in your career where you've actually been in that situation? Yeah, it happens a lot. Okay. Uh, particularly when you're out on your own, like when I was in the US with mm-hmm. uh, Bavis Land Lease, there were right. a number of different situations that came up there where I had to call shots on different situations. and. Uh, you're sitting in the middle of the US and your support sure. network, which was comfortably around me in Sydney mm-hmm. in the early days, um, was spread all over the world. Mm. And you needed to back yourself around your values. Right. So, and I found when I went back to those core values and pressed hard at different issues, um, I always came out in a, in a reasonable position. And, and frankly, the business and the teams came out in a better mm-hmm. way. Um, yeah, Great it's... advice. And uh, just to close out, John, because I know you've got a busy day ahead. So uh, outside of work, what are the sort of things that you do that keep you uh, uh, fresh and enthused and keep the petrol in the tank, etc.? Yeah, look, you've got to get a balance in whatever you're doing, Richard. And, and for me, you know, I love sports. So I play a bit of golf. Um, I'm an avid cricket fan, so, so I try to get along to a lot of cricket games. And mm-hmm. in fact, for probably the best... Uh, cricket I played was three seasons playing with my son when he was sort of 16, 17, 18 at, at, uh, and he went into men's cricket okay. and, and we played three seasons together. So, so I don't play cricket anymore. That right. was several years ago now. Sure. Um, but uh, certainly love my cricket, uh, tennis and a lot of walking with my wife. But in particular, I love photography. Okay. And uh, so I've got some pretty good cameras and right. like to get around and, and uh, take lots of photos. and. And, uh, and traveling is, is another um, uh, fun part of what Leanne and my wife and I do sure. um, in, uh, in how we spend time together. Oh, that's great, John. Well, look, before we close out, is there any final thoughts or anything that you wanted to add to the conversation or have, are we done? Look, Richard, I think we're done. I, you know, I've been very fortunate with my career. It's been about taking the options that have come my way that work best for um, developing my career and, and enjoying what you're doing. And, and above all, uh, make sure your team's enjoying what they're doing and are kicking goals. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. No, it's great. I'm sure uh, our audience will uh, really enjoy listening to what you've had to say. But in the meantime, have a great afternoon. Thank you very much. Cheers. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the Arate podcast, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation with John. I found him a fascinating guy, and I really enjoyed what he had to say about his career, and also how passionately he is looking forward to challenges and opportunities that are coming up for him over the next few years. I look forward to you joining us again on future Arate podcasts, and in the meantime, have a fantastic day.